And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is this... Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, you have said that there is something special that happens when your word is read and preached in corporate worship, and we know it doesn't have anything to do with Uh, the church or the preacher or any of those uh, peripheral things that has to do with you and your spirit and that your word never goes out and returns to you empty. We pray that that would be so this morning. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Here's a question for you. How many deals have you made this week? In other words, how many agreements have you been a part of or how many bargains have you entered into? You might want to think about that for a few minutes because it's probably more than you realize. And if you think about it, you sort of had a deal with your alarm clock or your iPhone that it would go off this morning when uh, you programmed it so you could get to church on time. And you had a deal with your city that when the light was green on the way here, that it was safe to go through that intersection. It wasn't going to be green uh, and, and the crossways that you could do that safely. And you had, you had a deal with your work that you're off on Sundays and you won't be expected to be there. You can come here to church and worship. See, we make all kinds of deals, all kinds of little commitments and pledges and arrangements, and so many and so often that I would argue that they really define our relationships and our lives, our work, our family, all those things are relationships with these sort of inherent stipulations to them. And so I would say that in our lives, it's actually our deals that define us. I'll say that one more time. It's our deals that define us. And that's not an accident, right? Because uh, God actually makes deals too. 
When he strikes a, a special deal with his people, he calls that a covenant. And today, we're going to talk about a couple very important ones. And we're going to do it through the lens of this passage. So let's walk through it a little bit. Here's some context. David is finally king. Samuel had anointed him all the way back in 1 Samuel 16. And it's taken some time. Uh, David had to do many things before he could uh, become king. A lot of really hard things that you can read about. Uh, But you may remember he was on the run. He was hiding in caves. At one point he was even uh, in enemy territory acting like he was crazy. Uh, So he had to go through a lot of really hard things before he could become king, before he could take the throne. But the point is that he did it. And not only did God make him king, but God entered into a covenant with him, promising that the throne of David would be established forever. And so with that promise in his back pocket, David went out and he waged war, which is what God wanted him to do. And in chapter 8, he secures Israel's borders. So that in uh, 2 Samuel 8.15, it says, So David reigned over all Israel. God's people are finally in the land that God has for them. They have God's man as their leader. And everything is settled, finally. After all this time, he brought them all the way out of slavery in Egypt, and now they are settled And now David has some business to take care of. We talk about the first hundred days for a politician, right? That's when they get in office and and they start doing all those things that they promised, or at least some of the things that they promised, right? And uh, that's what's happening here. Uh, David, uh, he's in his first 100 days, and we pick up in verse 1. He says, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, here's what's happening right here. Uh, Back in 1 Samuel 20, when David was far, far away from taking control of the throne, he made a deal. He was in danger. Uh, Saul knew that God had appointed David to take his kingdom, and so he wanted David dead. And Jonathan, Saul's son, loved David. And so he took an oath before God, saying, I'll warn you if you are in danger. I'll protect you from my father because I know that you are the true king. And so in love, David responded with his own oath. He promised that he would never cut off the house of Jonathan. And David did not forget. Even though he made this deal at a time of great uh, personal weakness, even though God had completely reversed his fortunes and secured his throne, David is faithful to keep his promise. And that is not a small thing, right? Because at at this time, in the ancient Near East, uh, a shift in power meant death for anyone from the old regime, right? They're dangerous. Uh, They could take power. They They could lead their own uprising and retake the throne. And so the only way for a new king to be secure was to eliminate every possible threat. No questions asked. Women, children, everyone from the old regime. Until now, because David's throne is different. His throne has been established by God, by a God who shows hesed. Hesed is uh, translated different ways in your Bible, but it it basically means a special commitment of uh, covenant faithfulness, of covenant loving kindness. It's a heavy word. And so just like God, David 
remembers his promise to protect Jonathan's children. And now that he's on top, he goes looking for someone to keep that promise to. And that's something special, right? I've been uh, reading the great novel Don Quixote. And at one point, there's sort of a side story where there are four or five prisoners, and they want to break out of prison. And they're saying, hey, which one of us is going gonna, is gonna to break out and then come back and get the other ones, right? And the, the sort of oldest and wisest prisoner says, no, no, no. He says, we all have to break out at the same time because if one of us goes, once you get out there, once you taste that freedom, then you forget all about your promises. Well, David is the rare person who, uh, when his fortunes are re- reversed, he has the integrity to go back and do what he promised. He goes looking for someone to keep his promise to. And it turns out that there is somebody. Uh, Mephibosheth is a cripple. We found out why in 2 Samuel 4. Uh, he was five years old when his father and grandfather, Jonathan and Saul, were killed in the Battle of Mount Gilboa. And so as his nurse fled with him, she dropped him, uh, and he became lame. And so Mephibosheth has lived a hard life, right? He has lived the life of uh, a handicapped orphan. He's probably lived on the run, looking over his shoulder, knowing that he is the only descendant of the house of Saul left, and knowing that he is a marked man, and that someone is going to come for him to snuff him out. And now, all of his worst fears are coming true, right? He is... Uh, he's been found, and he's face-to-face with David. He doesn't have any bargaining power. He doesn't have any pretense of self-defense. He doesn't even have the physical ability to run away. Mephibosheth is completely at David's mercy. And what does David do? Verse 7, he says to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will... Restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. He paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth is stunned. He thinks that David wants to take his life away from him, and instead David wants to give him a new life. God's chesed had reversed David's fortunes, and now David is doing the same for Mephibosheth. He gives him land and honor and a lifelong seat at his table. And we have to understand what this means for him, right? Uh, David is inviting a cripple and an outcast and an enemy into his house, and he is lavishing him with gifts. Now, this is not normally how a, a king gets on top or stays on top, is it? There's nothing for David to gain by this. It is sheer grace. He's saying, you don't have to live in fear anymore. You'll never go hungry. You'll never be looked down on. You will always have a seat at my table as long as you live. And all Mephibosheth can do is say, in humility, who am I? I'm just a dead dog. It's a term of of self-abasement. Dogs in Israel were not pets. (laughs) They weren't man's best friend. Nobody wanted them. They were scavengers. They were animals in the worst sense of the word. It's almost like maybe in our context he's saying, I'm just a dead possum. I'm just a dead, there's a flat skunk on the road. 
So notice the contrast between how Mephibosheth thinks about himself and how David thinks of him. A, a dead dog versus a man of honor. An enemy versus an ally. An orphan versus a son. And the last part might be the most important. David made a deal with Jonathan, and because of that, because David keeps his promise, Mephibosheth is essentially adopted. He gets treated like one of David's own children. He gets a place of honor at the table of the king, and his line even survives through his son, Micah. And if you're a parent, you know that that is the ultimate kindness. Not only that you would be safe, but that your children would be safe. I heard someone say once that having a child is like watching your heart walk around outside your body. And now Micah is safe. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, then you know that there are some things going on here that you see again and again. The themes of uh, promises kept, of lives saved, of orphans adopted occur throughout the Bible. Because it turns out that all of us are a part of a deal. We're a part of a deal that God struck with mankind way back in the Garden of Eden. And it doesn't matter if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, it doesn't matter who you are, if you're here on this earth, you are a part of this deal. And there, uh, Genesis tells us, God made a covenant with Adam. And he said, I'll be your God, I'll give you everything you need, just don't eat of the tree of good and evil. In Christian history, this has been called the covenant of works. And we know that it did not last very long, did it? Uh, Adam broke it. He didn't trust God. He did exactly what God told him not to do. My wife was teaching my uh, two-and-a-half-year-old Weldon the story the other day. She said, God told them not to eat from the tree, and they ate from the tree. And he said, and that's not very nice. <laughs> and it's not. Uh, it's, it's beyond not nice. Uh, Adam broke the covenant, and it's not just that he sinned. It's that God had made Adam our representative. The old divines called him our, our federal head, uh, the representative of all the human race. And so in him, me and you and everybody we know, everyone who has ever lived is in a spot just like Mephibosheth. We are on the wrong side of the king. We're in open rebellion against God. See, that's what sin is, right? It's not, um, it's not, it's, it's your own sort of private insurgency against God's kingdom. It's not just the bad things that you do. It's not just breaking the covenant that said you should love and serve God alone. Sin is setting up your own opposing kingdom, the kingdom where you can be made much of where you can get what you want, and you can be on your own throne. And it's piecing together all these side deals to build it, to get what you want out of this life and to exalt yourself. Here's what I mean by uh, side deals. Somewhere in your life, you've probably found a little bargaining chip, right? You found some, some leverage, uh, and you figured out how to trade that to make more out of yourself, to get your own throne. And remember, sin isn't just doing bad things. It's also taking good things, maybe even gifts from God, and using them for your own glory. 
So an example of these side deals, maybe God blessed you with good looks, and you found that you can manipulate people into getting love or attention or maybe even material things through that. Maybe God gave you a sense of humor, and you've learned that uh, a really well-placed joke can get you out of all kinds of sticky situations. Or maybe it's your intellect, and you're smart enough that you can cut corners at, at school or uh, at work, or other places, so that you can do what you want at other times. Or maybe you've just got what I call uh, duck syndrome. And that's where, on the surface of things, you're just gliding along really smooth. Everything's great. Everything's fine. But underneath, you're just paddling away. And you're trying so hard just to keep up with what you look like on top, above the surface. And you're afraid if you stop that you're going to lose everything. You're going to spiral out of control. If you want to do a test on these things, I think you should uh, look at social media. Now, social media isn't all bad. I'm not anti-social media. Uh, but for a lot of people, social media is like the billboard of your kingdom. Or if you don't really use social media, think about maybe the texts that you send to your family or your friends, what you tell them when you're on the phone with them. It's the billboard of your kingdom, right? What do I want to show people about who I am? Welcome to Bradford Greenville, where the kids are beautiful and quiet. Uh, welcome to Bradford Greenville, where... The barbecue is always just right, and the Tennessee Vols win the 2016 National Championship. <laughs> what do you show people? What's on your billboard? Well, here's the problem with all that. The problem is that as we sort of play out this charade, uh, this, this sort of building of our own little mini kingdom, the problem with that is that the real king, right, the capital K king, is coming. He's coming back, and the covenant that Adam broke, and that we have broken in him, is, is haunting us. And sin is in us in such a way that we re-break that covenant every day. And God cannot just let that go. See, unlike us, God is a God who keeps his covenants, who remembers, who brings justice. And so all these side deals, uh, all these things we do to build our kingdom make us more guilty more helpless, more of a dead dog than even the person in the story, right? Mephibosheth was crippled in both of his feet because his nurse fell. We are crippled in heart because Adam fell, and we have followed him in that every day. And so before God, whatever that chip was, whatever that leverage was, it just disappears. And we're like him, waiting, helpless to die. Unless, unless we're defined by a different deal. See, we need a covenant that supersedes the covenant that God made with Adam. Uh, we, can't, uh, we can't get a, just a new one and, and move that one to the side, right? It's because that's not how God works. We need one uh, that covers over that one, that, that nullifies it, that can reconcile us to God, and that can give us new life. And that's exactly what we have in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, in God the Son, a new covenant has been put in place. A covenant of grace. It's a new deal that you enter into by faith. And through it, you get two things. You actually get a lot of things, but we're going to talk about two. Uh, first, you're forgiven 
from your sin and rebellion. But it's more than that. It's not just that you're forgiven and you return into some sort of neutral place where you have to again uh, worry about what's going to happen after that. It's that you're forgiven for your sin and rebellion on the one hand, but on the other hand, you're also adopted into the king's family. In Jesus, God has showed once and for all his hesed. He showed his covenant faithfulness. The same covenant faithfulness that saved Mephibosheth is what God has given us in Jesus Christ, except that it's better. It's far better. Mephibosheth had a seat at the table uh, for as long as his life lasted, right? Uh, But in Christ, we have a seat at God's table forever. And even better than that, when you turn away from your sin, when you give up all those side deals, you're not crippled anymore. You may still walk with a limp until uh, you get to heaven, until Jesus returns, but sin doesn't define you in that same way. Uh, Jesus defines you, and through God's grace, you become more and more like him every day. So let me clarify one thing. Um, We've been talking about deals, and in a deal, you get something when you give something, right? That is not how the covenant of grace works. It's still a transaction, but it is different. Uh, In in our lives, right, you you don't get anything free. (laughs) At least it feels like that. Uh, In 99.9% of our earthly deals, you get something because you give something, right? But in the covenant of grace, you get something because God gave something. Because he gave himself on the cross. You didn't have any collateral before God, right? But Jesus became that for you in his life, in his death. And so this deal is one-sided. It's a unilateral action from a loving, gracious, supreme all-powerful king. And that means several things for your life. First, uh, being a Christian means that you give up your own kingdom. Uh, I read a book a few weeks ago. It was a history of the Indian Wars of the 1800s and specifically about a tribe called the Comanches. Um, The Comanches were Plains Indians and their life was really defined by three things. Horses, buffalo, and war. And in a very short amount of time, they lost all three of those things. Uh, not, not even a generation, more like a decade. They lost all three of those things that define them. Uh, and for most Comanches, that cultural change, as you can imagine, was very sudden and very brutal. Now, that is uh, a dark moment in American history, and that is a negative. But if you'll allow me to use a negative uh, to draw a positive analogy, that's a little bit what it is like when you become a Christian, right? Nobody wants to give up their own kingdom, but that's exactly what Jesus did. He gave up his throne to come down to rescue sinners like you and me. And so with the Spirit working in us, we can live a new life. We can leave behind all those things that used to define us, whatever they may be. We can enter God's kingdom, become whole. Second, uh, being a Christian means you begin to view yourself differently. So remember, uh, Mephibosheth thought he was a dead dog or a possum or a skunk. Uh, But that's not how David thought of him. David thought of him as a son. And in the same way, um, Christ 
in Christ, you don't have to spend your time trying to convince people that you're worthy of their love and attention. You're free to think and act like a royal because you know that your seat at the table has been secured by Jesus. You don't need anything else. Third, when you're defined by the new covenant, you have a responsibility to show it and reflect it to others. It's both a duty and a delight. Now, we have problems uh, putting those things together, right? We're Americans. We work when we work, and we uh, are off when we're off, generally. Uh, but in Scripture, we see duty and delight held up together all the time. And that is what David was doing. He showed Mephibosheth grace and mercy and was pleased to do that because God had shown him grace and mercy. And it's a great example of how when you're not busy building your own kingdom, you're free to go and build God's. David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? He said, who can I go and show this amazing, loving kindness to? Think about how easy it would have been for him to never do that him to never go and find Mephibosheth. It wasn't like he was going to come forward, right? He was in hiding. He was, he was scared for his life. And David went and sought him out. So how can you show that kind of love? The kind of love that God has shown you if you're in Christ? Well, here's a couple really practical ways, I think. First, go and find somebody. Go and find somebody on the outskirts, on the margins, somebody who has absolutely nothing to give you and start showing them attention. Uh, Invite them to things. Text them. Call them. Talk to them about the love of Christ. You know that uh, Little Rock is full of those people, right? Um, They're everywhere. Broken people, hurting people people looking over their shoulder, people who have no idea what it is like to have a genuine friend. I'm always amazed amazed with my college students that some of the most popular of them actually have no idea what it is like to have a friend who asks them about themselves. They're almost confused when you ask them questions. Uh, Friendship is, is far more rare than we realize. And along those same lines, I would say maybe a second practical thing to show this, uh, this loving kindness is, is love the friends that you have. I saw a, a blog post a little while back about the friendship of C.S. Lewis and, and Tolkien, um, and the blog post was titled, Friends Like Hounds. Now, I didn't read it. I don't even know what was in there, but I just love the title, right? Friends Like Hounds. David hounded the friendship of Jonathan. He refused to let it go, even after... Jonathan was dead. David went and sniffed out his son and loved him. So remember, it's our deals that define us with our friends, with our potential friends, and even with God. It's our deals that define us. And so God was glorified in what David did. And God is glorified when you seek people out and show them the kindness that God has showed you. Or when you show it to people that you already know. And if you do that, people are going to take notice, I promise. Uh, it's, again, it's far more rare than we realize. And they'll say, who am I that this person showed this sort of kindness to me? 
And that is how God's kingdom goes forward. It goes forward in people's hearts through relationships as, as a model of how God grabbed a whole bunch of covenant breakers like us and loved them so much that he struck a new covenant with them to save us from his own judgment, to bring us into his family. That is our story. That is what we have to give each other and to give uh, other people beyond these walls. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, we thank you um, again for your word and uh, how powerful it is, uh, no matter how we feel about it in the moment. <laughs> No matter uh, what we're thinking about or uh, how we feel, your word is, is living and active. And we pray that we would take these truths from it, that you would apply them to our hearts through your spirit, and that uh, all these things would glorify you. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat>